0: Pride and selfishness have been in our American DNA from the beginning. This whole notion of the American dream, the value that we place on the self-made man, the accent on image, the emphasis on pursuing wealth and power, we've had a long history of feeding pride and self-centeredness.
1: Hey all, this is Nate Dancer with Pure Life Ministries. Last week we began to explore how our prideful self-life is the root of all sin. Today we dig a little deeper, looking at what allows pride to flourish and grow. We'll look at life in America and examine the ways it encourages us to be proud. Then we'll talk about trials in marriage and how they can nurture the growth of pride in really unexpected ways. Both of these topics will also help us see more clearly the way God deals with pride and the consequences of its unchecked influence. Thanks for joining me today on Purity for Life. It's not easy to let the Lord deal with our pride, because He does it by putting our self-life to death. And death, by its very nature, is painful. I'm sure you can agree with me. Americans are conditioned to avoid anything painful. Think of how many weight loss advertisements are designed to help people get what they want without having to rigorously discipline themselves to eat well and exercise. If we carry that same mentality into spiritual things, we want the easy way out. We want God to zap us after we pray a prayer. We want an expert to give us some tips and techniques for a better life. Aren't you glad that God is a good father and that he doesn't just give us things the easy way? Because if he did, oftentimes it would just serve our lust of having what we want when we want it. I trust that this interview will help you see the value of resisting pride in your life, despite how difficult the fight will be. In Pastor Steve's book, he talks about how the American culture is widely geared toward promoting self. And we looked at the origins of pride in one of the earlier shows, how Lucifer, who was created to worship God, began to focus on himself and how that was the beginning of pride. And so when we look at American culture, I want you to talk about how we see um, some of the things in American culture that really promote this, this viewing of self and how that fosters pride.
0: Sure, Nate. Um, Actually, uh, to be honest, I don't think there's any aspect of the mainstream culture that doesn't foster pride and self-centeredness. But it, the major contributors that I see would be things like the fashion industry, maybe where they, there's this this incredible emphasis on physical beauty and attractiveness that really promotes a self-centered obsession with our image, mm-hmm. and the whole sports realm, uh, competition and skill that really nurtures this prideful desire to dominate. Uh, this, you got science and technology, where there, there was an emphasis on intellect and ingenuity, uh, and it really fosters this attitude of superiority. Uh, you've got the business realm, where, you know, accomplishment and wealth is, is what it's all about. And it really is just a thin disguise for greed. Uh, You got entertainment, advertising, uh, schools, all of it, and, and the media behind every aspect of this just driving a culture of pride and selfishness. And, and when I really think about it, you know, pride and selfishness have been in our uh, American DNA from the beginning. Uh, mm. This whole notion of the American dream, the value that we place on the self-made man, uh, the accent on image and the emphasis on pursuing wealth and power. Uh, the, we've had a long history of feeding pride and self-centeredness in this country. Uh, but here's the, the reality is that things are actually getting worse. And I think that's because of the relatively recent uh, de-emphasis on character and integrity in our culture. So that now we've gotten to a place where there's virtually nothing standing in the way of an all out pursuit of wealth and sex and power. And the result is a culture of individuals who are just, you know, full of themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: You know, Pastor Ed, the Bible couldn't be more clear. We as Christians, are called to put on a spirit of humility. We're called to promote the interests and the values of others ahead of our own. And that is completely opposite from the the me-first attitude that you've just been talking about. But it seems that a lot of Christians today are convinced that American cultural values and Christian values are really in Harmony with one another. What do you see as being the reason that people are deceived about that?
0: I think there are probably two major uh, Factors in this deception and it really is a rampant deception Uh, The first factor I would cite is uh, this emphasis that we have on the outward Uh, We've developed an evangelical system that is obsessed with outward appearances of success and godliness so the focus is on bigger churches, flashier programs, cutting-edge worship. And and that system virtually ignores all the biblical commands. uh, And I would even say the biblical emphasis and focus Uh uh on the inward life, on qualities like integrity or patience and humility, esteeming others better than ourselves, all of those sorts of things. Uh, And we've uh, lost sight of becoming Christ-like in who we are as a person. The the, the person we are apart from our church attendance and apart from any audience that's watching us. Right, right. So we've come to this place where we're only concerned with the outward. Uh, The outside of the cup has to be clean, but the inside remains filthy and we're just oblivious to it. Mm. And the second thing that fosters this deception that Christian values are similar to the culture's values is our priority on being comfortable. Mm. We aren't willing to risk living as misfits in a culture that has completely opposite values. Uh, We're afraid we'll be trampled on. Uh, taken advantage of, um, but somehow we're definitely going to come out on the losing end, and we fear we won't have enough money or control uh, to enjoy a comfortable lifestyle. Mm. So we justify our need to adopt the culture's values, and we're content to follow pastors and teachers who allow us to stay in our deception.
1: Yeah, and as you're talking about that, it's reminding me of how much of an uphill battle we really have to fight when we're trying to come into this culture of humility, the kingdom culture, because we've been trained all the way from youth up to to live in an atmosphere of pride. I'm, I'm thinking about how we try to motivate children. We tell them, you can be the best. You can achieve your dreams. Well, most often that's at the expense of someone else. It's by overcoming them, excelling over them that we achieve those dreams. Can you elaborate on the danger, the spiritual danger of living in that mindset?
0: Well, Nate, if everyone adopts that mindset that I have to be the best, I have to be better than you, then it becomes a very Darwinian world, uh, one where it truly is the survival of the fittest. Mm -hmm. And and everyone is my competitor. And therefore, frankly, we tend to view them as enemies in our heart. Um, There's no sense of true community or fellowship, uh, if we use the biblical term for it koinonia Uh, there's none of that christ-centered fellowship uh, the mutual support and healthy interdependence that should be there in a christian community Uh, everyone is like on their own island and things have devolved to the point where there are virtually no restrictions left on how someone may use other people Uh or even abuse other people and then discard them uh, just to advance their own interests of course, you know, when you look at Scripture, virtually every page of the Bible denounces that kind of prideful, selfish uh, lifestyle. Yeah. Uh, we have verses that say, God is far from the proud. He resists the proud, or in fact, that means he arrays himself in battle against the proud. It's wow. a very serious uh, situation there. That, um, and, and other verses like, uh, with pride comes dishonor. He who exalts himself uh, will be humbled. We we could go on and on, Nate, and and we haven't even touched the multitude of commands or exhortations to be humble, to be lowly, to be meek, to love one's enemies and and all of those commands. Um, So when children are taught right from the start to choose this self-exalting Darwinian approach to life, it becomes their habit Their lifestyle, it's their very nature, really. And Uh it's never going to be easy to topple that kind of stronghold of deception in their life. Uh, So the Christian teaching, if they do come to it on humility and meekness, seems outdated, uh, unappealing to them, uh, probably even unacceptable, frankly. Mm -hmm. And so we end up with a lot of nominal Christians who don't know the first thing about laying down their life for others. You
1: know... Okay, so you're you're saying that kids find it very difficult once they grow up and they come into the church to believe that humility is really worth anything. And in some ways, it makes sense because when you look at the world around you, it is the people who are full of pride, who are making the Best life for themselves now. In a lot of ways, it is unbridled ambition. It is the uh, survival of the fittest that gets you to the top in the world's eyes. Um, and so, it, it's it's very hard for us to reconcile what the Bible says about the end of pride—that pride comes before destruction—with what it seems like is happening in the world. In in the reality of the world, how do you reconcile these two things?
0: Yeah, that's a good point, Nate, because, you know, honestly, I've felt that way myself at times. You know, I find myself uh, saying, tell me again why I'm doing this. Why I have to allow myself to get run over by someone else's pride and ambition. You know, why is it that I can't get away with the things that I see these other people getting away with? Uh, But I want to emphasize that God's word is always true. Mm -hmm. Pride really does lead to destruction, like that verse says. Mm -hmm. Haughtiness really does lead to a fall. The meek really will inherit the earth. And uh, for me, Psalm 73 has become one of my go-to scriptures. Whenever I find myself struggling a little bit in that mindset of seeing all these people prospering despite their obvious pride and ambition behind Mm -hmm. it all, and I obviously won't read the entire psalm right here, but it opens with the psalmist admitting his struggle with this very issue. And he says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Uh-huh. Uh, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Mm. And then he goes on to say, they aren't in trouble like other men. Uh-huh. They're not plagued like other men. They wear pride like a necklace around their neck. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes, they're, they're bulging with abundance. Uh, they increase in riches, and they have more than their heart could wish for. Mm. And mm. and then at that point he becomes uh, like particularly upset, it seems, with the fact that they're scoffing at God and, and mocking him. Doing all of these things without any consequences. Right, right. And here's his conclusion. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. Wow. In other words, why yeah. do I have to fight my pride yeah, to of my this. ambitions yeah. and deny myself, right? Uh, uh, here I am doing all the right things, and these wicked men have more blessings than I have. Right, right. But you got to get all the way through the psalm. You come to verse sixteen, and he says, "When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me." I mean, it really is—you wow. know—a struggle sometimes, uh, and it's a real struggle. But then he went into the sanctuary of God, into the presence of God really. And that's when he was able to understand things. He saw their end and he said, surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they're brought to desolation as in a moment, as in a moment even. Mm -hmm, It's going to happen fast and suddenly for them. And they're utterly consumed with terrors. Mm. And he sees their ultimate end uh, and says, For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. Mm. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. And the lesson from this psalm is that God, in his mercy, gives even the most wicked men time to repent, a long time to repent. But sooner or later, those who don't repent of their pride and selfishness, Mm -hmm. they will be abandoned to the destruction that they have sown for themselves.
1: And one of the things that I don't think we see all the time, because we're human and we don't know everything, is that in that space that God is giving people to repent. It's not just a passive waiting. He's also actively trying to keep people from going down that path. He's putting barriers in their path to make it difficult for people to destroy themselves. Uh, We see various scriptures that indicate like a progression of God's activity. With pride comes dishonor. That seems to be kind of like a mild form of... uh, Consequence. Then we see that a haughty spirit comes before a fall. Then we also see that that when people stiffen their neck after after fall after fall after fall, then that sudden uh, destruction comes and there's no remedy. But you know, it's that it's that striving of God that I think we don't always understand. And man, when you've striven or when you've resisted God time after time after time, that suddenly is a very terrifying thing. And it really should uh, cause us to examine ourselves. Where has God been striving with us and we've been resisting Him because um, we're not gonna have any excuse in that last day. When you've seen people Who have resisted God over the years? What are the things, the specific things you see God using to try to get their attention?
0: Yeah, that's a great question uh, because God is clearly always uh, trying to get them to repent. Uh, and, And I think that they probably, most of us probably miss. What God has been doing, we don't interpret it as Uh him dealing with us, trying to bring us to repentance. But he he surrounds us with examples of other people who Mm. are falling because of their pride. He delivers warnings to us, uh, sometimes even through non-believers, just somebody who arrests us in this course we're on Uh or or makes a comment to us. Uh, A lot of people, I I think he comes at them in some of the milder ways with uh, frustrations, things Mm -hmm. that that just won't work out smoothly. Like they know they could or should, this right. is not happening for them, uh, conflicts in their relationships, so those kind of things at the milder level. And it, when someone's still resisting and just not repenting like they ought to, uh, I, God clearly does take a, you a know, more serious approach and, and intervenes with things like maybe there's even a direct message now, You know, just connects them to a sermon, a right. book, or somebody walks up <laughs> into their life and confronts that, the sin in their life head on in some way. That um, he may uh, allow them to experience very serious financial setbacks, uh-huh. uh, some kind of major calamity in their uh-huh, life, uh-huh. Uh, an accident or, or health issue develops, uh-huh. um, loss of job. I mean, I've seen all of these things uh, right up to uh, you know their marriage collapsing and becoming addicted to you know alcohol, drugs, or of course, at Pure Life, we see a whole lot of sex addiction yeah. uh, and things like that. Uh, But along with all of those kinds of things happening in someone's life that the Lord is hoping will lead them to repentance, the major thing that I really see him doing is letting them feel empty and miserable, Mm -hmm. (laughs) almost like giving them what they want and Uh letting them find the emptiness and misery of it uh, so that they actually can have, like the psalmist said, more than their heart could wish. But internally, it's unsatisfying and Mm -hmm. miserable for them. And what they can never have in that situation is intimate communion with the Lord, which is really what they're craving and just don't know it. And without that kind of intimate communion with the Lord, life is meaningless. Uh, Solomon said it best, all is vanity. It's a grasping for the wind at that point.
1: Okay, so you have identified some of the spiritual consequences that affect that person on their end. And those things are always really, they're scary for a person who's selfish. They really deeply affect them in a, in a kind of way. But then there's all this collateral damage for the people around them. And we haven't talked at all about the consequences of a person's pride on other people. Can you talk about some of those things?
0: Sure. Uh, Because, you know, pride is devilish. And the thing the devil especially is intent on destroying is other people. Mm. That internal misery uh, we were just talking about shows up in various ways. Uh, Sometimes the person is really driven and he just walks all over the people around him. He's wounding them, but he doesn't even know it. Mm -hmm. And and, uh, other times, you know, the driven person frequently has a bad temper. And uh, of course, it's usually the people closest to him, right around him, who get the brunt of that anger. Uh, Somebody else might deal with his misery by medicating himself with illicit substances or activities. And uh, obviously here at Pure Life, we see this uh, frequently with the men who are now addicted because they've used pornography or adulterous relationships or something like that to, uh, as a form of self-medication. Right, right. Their pride and selfishness destroys so many marriages. Uh, we see wives often times who are devastated and not even willing anymore to try and rebuild the marriage. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're so hurt, so humiliated that even if they are willing, what tends to come out of them is their anger. And they they have an extremely difficult time learning to trust a man or specifically their husband again. And, And on top of that, you know, pride and selfishness is destroying families. Um, whether the person is single or married, uh, pride has wreaked havoc on their relationships with their family members. Uh, Even after someone repents of their pride, it can take years to bind up all those wounds and to rebuild and reestablish all of those relationships that their reckless pride has destroyed. So uh, the bottom line is that pride and selfishness destroys people. Mm.
1: Like Pastor Ed said, It can take years to rebuild the relationships that pride has destroyed, and pride really does destroy relationships. Oftentimes a husband in sexual sin is completely oblivious to the devastation his sin has caused in the heart of his wife. But there is another side of this, because pride is in every human heart, even in the heart of a betrayed wife. I'm not going to say much about that myself. I'm going to let Kathy Gallagher, our co-founder, talk about this vital topic. Kathy, last week we talked with one of our counselors about the way that a selfish lifestyle and a proud heart go hand in hand with sexual sin. And I'm sure that you experienced that firsthand when your husband Steve was in sexual sin, There was a very proud heart and a very selfish lifestyle that was giving birth to this sexual sin. Today, we want to look at things from a wife's perspective because as you have experienced yourself and seen in many wives' lives throughout the years, pride and selfishness are also major issues for the wives that we counsel. So to start off, could you talk about some of the ways that selfishness and pride present themselves in wives that you've counseled.
2: Yeah. Um, I would really like to start off with my own testimony, though, because we all respond in different ways. Mm -hmm. But I think many people will understand where I'm coming from with this. Because of Steve's sexual sin, I eventually began to see how the Lord was using that to expose what was in me. Mm-hmm. He was using Steve's sin to reveal to me what was in my own heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was mostly looking for relief from the pain and a way out of the mess. And um, I was not looking at me. I was right. looking at him right. and what he was doing to me and fell prey to the whole victim thing. Uh-huh. And, you know, in a sense, I was a victim. Right. But my decisions. The decisions that I was making, especially in the early days, were very selfish and very sinful. Mm -hmm. Um, I naturally justified—I say naturally, I mean in my nature. It was easy for me to justify adultery.
1: Because he did this, I'm justified with what I'm doing. Yeah,
2: and I was justifying adultery. I was justifying anger. And bitterness, I was self-righteous. Mm. I, my attitude was, look at what he's doing to me. Mm-hmm. And that phrase, look at what he's doing to me, is the gateway to justifying sinful attitudes and sinful behaviors. Mm. Those natural human responses, that's what God was after in me. He mm-hmm. was going for my own prideful arrogant responses to what was being done to me and mm. I know that sounds hard for some women, especially women who are really hurting right now they don't see they don't see it that way yet I didn't see it that way for sure um, it took the Lord years actually to convince me and show me what was coming out of my mouth out of my heart and out of my life. Mm. Um, I was standing outside of the scriptures. My title as wife put me in a different category, at least in my own mind. I don't think anybody thinks this through. It's just the response that comes out. I am a wife who's been betrayed by my husband. Right. So my feelings and my pain and what he was doing dictated my responses. Right. So scriptures like 1 Corinthians 13 didn't really apply to me. At least in my marriage, they didn't apply to me. Okay. Blessed are the meek. I was anything but meek or humble, and I wasn't looking for that path. And I think that's where a lot of women find themselves at. And they are lost in a sea of hurt and anger. Yeah. And God is going to, He's going to go after that because He's good. He's a good father. And a good parent doesn't let their children just go on and on and on in quote unquote bad behavior.
1: Yeah. I'm glad that you brought up the role that God plays in our life as Father because that's something that we often don't see in the midst of trials and difficulties. And the other thing that we often don't see is the role that the enemy is playing, the role that sin is trying to play um, in our lives because obviously the feelings of hurt and betrayal, that's not sinful. I mean, I'm sure that Jesus keenly felt the betrayal of mankind and even of his disciples, but in that betrayal, he never sinned. We're different. We're corrupted, and pride is relentless in its attempt to overcome us, that it's trying to ensnare us. It's trying to dominate us in situations like this. Can you just talk a little bit about that so we really understand the, the enemy behind all of these things?
2: Yeah. This is a powerful tool in the devil's arsenal, and he wields it continually. He's always looking for an opportunity to Mm -hmm. ensnare us through pride. And most of us don't even think about pride, you know? Um, But I've never met a person who did not struggle intensely with the pain of an unfaithful husband. Mm. And I've never, ever felt that it was wrong to experience those feelings. As Mm -hmm. you said, Nate, God himself experiences the pain and betrayal of his own people every day. He lives with it. It's constant. It's an unending grief in his heart. Um, God experiences pain and the betrayal of his unfaithful people every day. He knows what we're going through. He does understand it. Um, But some of the pride issues that I've seen in some women— are those uh, – yeah, this, this is a probably the biggest thing I have seen, and that is women who take absolute control over their husband. Mm. The need for constant updates, the need for constant information, the need for where were you, the need for what did you spend money on, looking at his phone, looking at his computer, um, mm. calling him throughout the day, and just this – it's a fear – driven pride. There's Mm. no other word really to describe it because what's behind it is I'm protecting myself Mm. and I'm going to keep myself together and I'm going to control you. I am going to make you do the right thing. I'm going to fix this thing. Mm. I probably have dealt with that issue more than anything else. Um, Then there's others who try to control in other ways, and that is appeasement. Peace at any cost. And I I could categorize myself in that because I was willing to do things that were unthinkable to make him do the right thing. Mm. I really thought that I could get him to see things my way by going along with his sin. That was such a horrible, horrible grief to me, and I know it was a grief to God, but you know— The older I got and the more I started to really see things from God's perspective, probably the most—the ugliest part of that for me was that I didn't care enough about Steve to step in and say, no, Mm. not from the control—taking control or being a control freak and trying to make him do the right thing, but from the standpoint of caring for his soul Mm. and being willing to say— stop. You know I'm not going to live like this. This is not what God has called me to. Mm. I didn't care that much about spiritual things. I didn't care that much about my husband. I cared Mm. about me, and I was willing to go along with whatever I needed to go along with to keep the peace and make him do the right thing. So you know what? The bottom line with all of it is just selfishness. Mm. I hate to say that because I'm talking to women who are hurt. Yeah. They want to be comforted and they yeah. need to be comforted. But this isn't the path. You know, the path of pride will always lead you to ruin and that was that is what the devil is going for.
1: Yeah, the path that seems like it's leading toward wholeness is each step taking us toward ruin. You yeah. know, he's able to create these images and these these unrealities and just keep coming toward this thing that mm-hmm. you think is leading you in a good way. And then that's what we've found, right, is that that's that's why we're saying these things is because we know where that path goes and we're just telling <laughs> – don't go there.
2: Yeah, you know, I'll tell you something that what happens when people stay – going down that path and being led down that path mm-hmm. is you become hardened in your heart you become callous because the enemy is leading you mm-hmm. and he is cajoling you and he is wooing you to fight for your rights mm-hmm. to defend yourself to not put up with this stuff I'm not going to put up with this stuff and that there's a there is something in that attitude that is hardening. It is a very hardening thing, and I know from experience that path, and I know the path of brokenness, and I needed the the Lord to step in and start exposing me, and that's what He was doing. He was exposing me. He was showing me what I was doing, and when you start looking at Scripture, when you start looking at what the Word of God is actually Mm -hmm. saying— I couldn't get away from my failure to mm-hmm, God as mm-hmm. a as a believer. I'm a Christian first and then a wife. And you know all all these emotions, all these feelings, all the sin, the sin was just so destructive, but the pride mm. in both of us is what was destroying both of us and the enemy had it was having his way, but then the Lord started leading me down the path of Submission, mm-hmm. not to sin, not to my husband's sin, but to the Lord. And it was a long and arduous path, but that is, there's something in the suffering that if you will allow the Lord to use it, and this doesn't mean you're going to get it all right, everything's going right. to be rosy just because right. you did a few things right. It's a path. Mm-hmm. It's a path of brokenness. It's a path of humility. It is the path that Jesus himself took, and he is our example.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The underlying—and I'm, I'm speaking from my own testimony now. I'm not a wife, obviously, <laughs> and I've never been through this. But the, the entrenched self-righteousness of believing that I am better than anyone else— mm is man that thing runs so deep and it takes so many revelations of our sinfulness and the cross mm-hmm. and the and the holiness and the love of god mm-hmm. to break us out of that self-belief mm-hmm. that I'm good in any way, that I have anything to recommend me to God, that I'm any better than any other person, right. man, it is a hard pill to swallow. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine. Now, I'm a, this is coming from a person who's done horrible things.
2: Hmm.
1: Wives, uh, most wives, I would guess, haven't done that.
2: No, How, but, but that's not what Jesus died for. It wasn't just things. It wasn't just behaviors, it was Mm. attitudes. And the attitude, I would never do that, is what he's going for. He's going after that because Mm. you know what? And I know people, I know most Christians that are listening probably have heard this before, but I'm going to say it again under the right circumstances, given the opportunity, there probably isn't much you wouldn't do. Mm. We're evil. And that is a revelation mm. that every believer needs to come to. You cannot come to the cross until you understand your black-heartedness. Mm. Jesus did not come to heal the healthy.
1: Yeah. He
2: came to heal the sick. He came to redeem us from every lawless deed. And whether or not we've ever committed sexual sin, whether or not we were Hitler in our heart, that doesn't matter. We are fallen. And the, I'll tell you, the thing that did it for me, man, it was a game-changer for me, was Luke 18, the publican and the Pharisee.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And these two, the righteous one and the sinner, went to the temple. They went to church to pray. Mm-hmm. And the self-righteous, the Pharisee, the one who thought he was good, and I would never do that. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I'm telling you, he, it says, that scripture, if you finish reading that passage of scripture, he did not go home justified in God's eyes. Wow. It was the sinner who said, wouldn't even look up to God. He was so ashamed, so guilt-ridden, so beaten down, so fully aware of who and what he was. It was real. And it wasn't just sexual sin. It was just... I saw myself in that man. That's who I was. I couldn't even look up to heaven. But I beat my breast, he beat his breast and said, "God be merciful to me the sinner." That man went home justified. And that is that is what did it for me when I saw that Jesus hung on that cross for a quote unquote good little girl. Yeah. It made it real to me and in my book, um, When a Secret Sin Breaks Your Heart, chapter five is called Level Playing Field. And that's where I describe what I went through, um, how God used the cross of Calvary to break my heart mm. and make it, it just, it put me on level ground with Steve. Mm. I'd already committed so much sin by that point, but it was the reality. That I am a sinner, and until a person wraps their head around that, they can't have the compassion and the understanding mm. and the willingness to go through with a sinner until they've had that real revelation. Yeah. And calling yourself Christian means nothing. Right? It doesn't mean anything to say, I'm a Christian, I go to church and I go to prayer on Wednesday, whatever. It's what is flowing out of you as a believer in mm. your daily life towards especially towards your quote unquote enemies.
1: Mm. And I was as you were talking I was just thinking about what we what we talked about how the enemy paints a picture to lead us into destruction he also paints a picture to keep us from life to mm-hmm. try to keep us from life you know like the idea of me seeing and finding out just how wrong I am as a person, he's he's always telling us through our sinful nature, don't do it. You don't want—that's suffering, that's misery, that's pain, that's—God would never want that. And mm-hmm. he's just—it's like a, this barrier keeping us from real life mm-hmm. and freedom, because when you do come to—that, like you said, that man, that publican went home right with God. Yeah. Yeah. That's real freedom.
2: Yeah. It sure is. And you can live with anything and practically anybody when you are that meek. And that's what it takes is meekness mm-hmm. and a real humbling of your pride. So God is faithful, you know, and He knows how to take us that way. The question is, do you want to go that way? Yeah. And are you going to argue against it? Because our natural responses are part of the fall. Yeah. And that is what Jesus came to redeem us from. That sinful, fallen nature.
1: In every form.
2: In every form.
1: Yeah. Okay, so if a wife is going this way, as you've said, the path of brokenness and humbling herself and forgiveness, and a husband is repenting of his sin, and they are, and that relationship in that sense is restored, there is still a lot of rebuilding and a lot of struggle. For both people, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the early stages, that self life still needs a lot of dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's on the cross, but man, is it screaming!
2: <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, how do you, how do you counsel couples to go through this early period without just being totally beaten down with discouragement?
2: Well, it's not easy, and I'm not going to pretend like it is. It's very difficult. But once once both of them are on that path, there is so much hope. Mm. I, I, this is brief, but I think it's packed. If a person will just sit and think it through, quit looking to and at each other. Mm. Start there, and then... Learn to say, I was wrong. Please forgive me. You have to quit looking to that person to to meet some need inside of you. We have a forced version of love in marriage in America, probably worldwide, but in America especially. It's just this, this forced version of love. Um, That is a big wedding, a big house, lots of Mm. kids, all my personal needs being met by another person, marital bliss, the happily ever after deal. But true love is the tossing aside of personal happiness as trivial and it is planting deep in our hearts the interest of another person. Mm. Um, Mm. It is us meeting their need not insisting that they meet our needs and if if people can turn it around if they can start to think in terms of i'm here for him i'm here for her yeah i'm not here for me she's not here to satisfy my needs he's not here to satisfy my needs i am here for that person that selflessness is what makes marriages excellent that willingness To quit looking to that person to be your all in all Mm -hmm. will eliminate so many problems. It's just, yeah, it, it just deals with so many problems. And probably just as important is the ability to say, I was wrong. Please forgive me. And if you can do that in marriage, you will have a very healthy and long marriage together. You will become affectionate. Um, friends, just such deep camaraderie, such deep fellowship and intimacy that you just, you, you know, people are grasping. They're trying. They're, they want it. They're trying to get it. They're going after it. They're going to make it happen. That is not the way God laid out for his people or for any, just a human being. That's not how you do it. It's through self-sacrifice, and it is through selflessness. It's Jesus' life lived out in us and through us.
1: Like Kathy mentioned, it's so easy for us to try to tackle the tough issues in our lives through our own strength. But really, it's just another way that our self-life tries to avoid truly surrendering to God— And when we try to approach God that way, it leaves us feeling miserable because God has to resist our pride. But if you realize your need, don't let your pride stop you. Ask God to humble you and to make you poor in spirit. This is a request that he loves to answer. That's all for today. Thanks for joining us.